If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Reveal. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Where does the current royal family spend most of their time? How might Anne Boleyn have decorated a room of her choosing? And how have British royal palaces evolved over time? In the latest Everything You Want to Know episode, we caught up with Tracy Borman to discover more about British royal residences through history, covering everything from spooky ghost stories to remarkable recent discoveries. Tracy is Joint Chief Curator of Historic Royal Palaces, and she was joined in conversation by Rachel Dinning. So I thought before we get on to some of the great questions we've had submitted by our readers, um, I thought you could start by introducing yourself, Tracy, and perhaps telling us a bit about your role as Joint Chief Curator at Historic Royal Palaces. So I'm Tracy Borman and yes, I work for Historic Royal Palaces as the Joint Chief Curator. So really the curators are the historians of these amazing uh, royal palaces. And so we get to do lots of research and talk about the stories and the people connected with these six very iconic palaces, probably the most famous being the Tower of London, but there's also Hampton Court and Kensington and so on. Um, And yeah, probably the best part of my job, I have to say, is going through those doors that say private on them, (laughs) because I love exploring. And even though probably most of those doors lead to something like a broom cupboard, it's still quite thrilling. Um, And we've got some questions later on from some of our readers, I know, asking about your favourite discoveries and all that kind of thing. So we will get on to that in a bit. Um, But before we do, I was was curious to know, which is your favourite of the six palaces that you look after? Gosh, you see, the the thing is, we're not allowed to have favourites. So, you know, I'm just going to trust your listeners not to tell anybody um, when I say that probably it's Hampton Court. Um, Much as I love the Tower of London and its rich history, uh, Hampton Court for me has just the most unique atmosphere. It's like stepping back into Henry VIII's court and I kind of have a pinch myself moment every time I arrive for work there. I can't quite believe I work at Hampton Court. Um, It's just incredibly special. And I've worked there for about 13, 14 years, but I still haven't got round each one of its 1,360 rooms. Like you say, there's something new to discover all the time. 
Um, so I'm going to jump into our questions from our listeners. And I think we're going to start with a series of five questions from our Instagram followers. And if people listening want to follow us on Instagram and submit questions for future podcasts, you can find us at History Extra. Um, so, and I'm going to have to apologize for pronouncing people's usernames incorrectly, probably, but, um, real HSV art wants to know how many British Royal residences do we have? Figures do vary a little bit, um, because it kind of depends what you class as uh, an official British Royal residence. But, uh, I think the most cited number is 23 current Royal residences residences. Uh, Now, there is also a list of previous royal residences, some which have since been destroyed or burnt down, others which have changed ownership, and that's well over 100. Uh, But we're looking at about 23 current royal residences. And Kimberly Dresler wants to know who actually owns these residences and who's maintaining them. That's a really good question because actually it's not a simple one to answer. The Crown does own some of them, uh, for example, uh, Buckingham Palace and Windsor Castle, two of the most famous of the uh, the British royal residences. Others, um, such as Balmoral and Sandringham, are personally owned um, and have been passed down for generations. So, you know, a member of the royal family acquired them and they've kind of stayed within the family, but they're not officially owned by the Crown. Um, Others are no longer royal residences, like the Palace of Westminster. Um, And um, as a general rule, the occupied royal residences are cared for and maintained by the royal household, and the unoccupied royal palaces are cared for by historic royal palaces, where I work. Uh, The exception to that is Kensington, because that's a palace of two halves. It has an unoccupied side, which we manage, and it has an occupied side, of course. It's still a living royal residence. And so the royal household manages that side of the palace. So, gosh, it sounded like a simple question. It's not a simple answer. That makes a lot of sense. Um, And linking into that, uh, where do our royal family live? We know that it's in a variety of places, but where do they mainly, where do the main royal family spend their time? This is a question from Franchise 505. Again, um, not necessarily straightforward, but I'm going to tell you the general rule for the modern royals. Uh, Buckingham Palace is kind of the main HQ, really, where they spend a lot of time, um, but they sort of have a a royal year of moving about according to the season. So, you know, Buckingham Palace is probably the one where they spend most time, but um, it's traditional for the monarch and their family to spend Easter at Windsor, uh, to go to Holyrood up in Edinburgh for what's called Royal Week, which is at the end of June, beginning of July. They have summer in Balmoral and, of course, Christmas at Sandringham. So that's the typical sort of royal year. But it has changed a bit since the pandemic. And the Queen is now spending a lot more time um, at Windsor, particularly since Prince Philip's death there uh, last year. Um, She seems to favour Windsor above the other royal residences. And I guess if you look back through history, different monarchs throughout time will have had different residences and different rotors and things. 
So, for example, your area, Tudor history, um, where was Henry VIII spending a lot of his time? Yes, they all had their favourites. And Henry is probably synonymous with Hampton Court, but actually it was Greenwich that was probably his favourite palace. Now, that's one of those, I know we'll be talking about lost palaces, and and it's such a tragedy that this amazing uh, palace has since been lost. But Henry spent an awful lot of time there, um, as well as at his pride and Enjoy a non-such palace which he created. But let's remember Henry VIII built about 60 palaces. So he must have been forever on the move. And the royal court could never stay in one palace for too long because they exhausted the food supplies. They they kind of stank it out. Um, it needed to rest uh, when the royal court had been staying. So um, it was of necessity that the court was forever on the move. Um, Tracy A wants to know how has public access to these places changed over the years? Because obviously some of them we can go in, some of them we can't. Exactly. Well, it has changed. And, you know, when you're looking way back, you would really be very lucky to go inside a royal palace at all. So I think probably I should start by saying we have better access now than we've ever had to royal palaces. Obviously, it slightly depends on which residents we're talking about. But as a general rule, you know, for hundreds of years of the monarchy's existence, you really had to have a a very definite reason to be in a palace. You had to be invited. You had to work there. You had to um, be an attendant of the king or queen. Now, that did gradually change. When the monarchy uh, evolved, it appreciated the need to be more in touch with the people, particularly after the civil war in the 17th century and the the glorious revolution. And that's when you get the age of um, the monarch dining in public and you could buy a ticket to go and watch the king or queen having their dinner um, or, or, you know, walking in the park uh, in the case of Kensington. And that was really the beginning of royal tourism, I think. So from the late 17th, early 18th centuries, that's when the doors of the palaces were, if not flung open, then at least opened enough to let people in. And then it really became a tourist industry under Victoria when she gave some of these palaces to the nation, really, to enjoy. And that's when you get the likes of the Tower of London having its first ticket office and people visiting to see the ravens and the menagerie, sometimes with quite disastrous consequences, I have to say, when they encountered these terrifying beasts inside the tower. They didn't all escape with all of their limbs intact. Um, But it's from then then onwards, really, from the Victorian period that it's a tourist industry and, and it still remains that way today. What was Queen Victoria's thinking when she opened up the doors like that? Was it a popularity thing or was it something else? I think it was a bit of a popularity move, at least in part, because Victoria spent a lot of her reign, obviously, in mourning. There was a period when she basically gave up her public royal duties. And there was a growing Republican movement that really was very critical of the Queen and of the monarchy in general. And so it was partly in response to that. But let's not be too kind to Victoria, because actually she she opened the doors or gave the palaces away that she didn't like that much. You know, so she she kept the ones uh, that she loved, such as Osborne and Balmoral, and she kept them very much to herself. So it wasn't exactly a great sacrifice. Um, we've You mentioned it very briefly. Um 
So what are some notable royal residences that we have lost time and why? This is a question from MHFQ on Instagram. There are some real tragedies here um, because the nature of royal palaces is that in in the past um, they were very susceptible to fire. Um, obviously, the the uh, the kitchens were all on site. There was lots of wood involved in the in the building, um, and so you get an awful lot of palaces just burning down. Um, a notable example being Whitehall Palace, which was one of the largest uh, of the royal residences, um, right in the heart of London. Um, none such actually didn't burn down, um, but uh, had a slightly different fate, which I'll mention perhaps a bit later. Um, There was Richmond Palace as well. I mean, the list goes on and on. I said right at the beginning, there are, you know, about 23 current royal residences, but well over 100 former ones. So an incredible amount um, have been lost. And goodness me, I'm often asked, you know, if you could go back in time, what would you do? I would just see these amazing buildings, just stand in them and and look in awe at the magnificence. Jo- uh, Joyce Das on Facebook would like to know about the oldest royal residence. Um, so what was the first place that the royals built in England that they lived in? That was Windsor, I think, can, can lay claim uh, to that really as as a royal residence as we would understand it. Um, that was first built by William the Conqueror. Uh, so a lot of royal history tends to begin with 1066 and the Norman Conquest. And Windsor is a prime example of that. So it can claim almost a thousand years of more or less continuous royal residency. Um, and so, yeah, Windsor is really, I think, the oldest. And it's wonderful that it's still a great favourite. It's kind of changed with the times uh, and it's still popular. And the same is definitely not true of all of the sort of older palaces. Um, And Jessica Roberts would like to know which is the most expensive palace to be built, which I I imagine could be a very difficult question because we have different concepts of money across history. It's such a difficult one because, of course, it's very much of its time. Um, When you answer this, of course, inflation rates and I've, I've... had a think about this though. Um, and I was tempted to go with non-such just because, uh, you know, Henry VIII built it as a place such uh, as none other has seen. You know, there's non-such place like it. So he, he wanted to get one over on the King of France and make it more magnificent than his palace. But actually, I'm afraid, I think Henry VIII was pipped to the post in terms of eye-watering expense by George the Prince Regent, later George IV. He was the one who set about transforming Buckingham Palace, which was uh, a fairly modest palace when he inherited it from his father, George III, into this spectacular royal residence, spending £25 million. Now, I think George IV, basically, you're pretty much safe in saying when it comes to which monarch spent the most on X, Y or Z, it's usually George IV because he just ran up billions of pounds of debt. He just spent what he liked and didn't care for the consequences. So actually, it was probably Buckingham Palace. 
And going back briefly to the Palace of Nonsuch, which you've mentioned a few times now, um, we had a question specifically about this palace from Janice Absalom on Facebook. Um, so, well, I suppose firstly, could you give us a little bit of history of the palace? What what did Henry VIII, what was his intention for this? So uh, the Palace of Nonsuch, uh, as I mentioned, it was designed by Henry VIII to be just the most spectacular showpiece palace. It wasn't necessarily all that practical, but it looked amazing. It was like a fairy tale palace with octagonal towers. It had incredible hunting ground. Um, I can vouch for the fact it still has incredible grounds because I take my dog Cromwell for a walk there uh, lots. And so it is still, you know, a very, very beautiful park um, in southwest uh, London. Um, and it remained a, a real favourite with the Tudors. It was it was built as a real symbol of, of the Tudor dynasty. And uh, it sort of fell out of favour subsequently with the Stuarts. Um, and then ultimately, Charles II, the merry monarch, uh, gave it to one of his mistresses. Of course he did, because uh, he was always giving things to his mistresses. He gave it to Barbara Palmer, Countess of Castlemaine who in 1682 or thereabouts had it all pulled down because she had gambling debts that she needed to pay off. So she had it pulled down and all the parts sold off to pay her gambling debts. That makes me want to weep. I would almost have preferred it to have burned down or something like that. Wow, that's so sad. And do we know much about the um, the name, the Palace of Nonsuch? It's such a strange, strange it name. It literally means there is nonsuch like it in the world. So, you know, there's no comparison. There's no peer to nonsuch. Um, nothing even comes close. So I, it, it, I could hardly believe it when I found that out. It's like it really means what you think it means. There's none such palace like it. Yes. Terrible English, but that's what it means. <laughs> um, sticking with the Tudors, uh, Wendy on Twitter wanted to know, is it true that Henry VIII built St. James Palace for Anne Boleyn? Well, it's true that he built it when his relationship with Anne was at its height. It's harder to say whether he built it for her. Uh, the main construction period was from 1531 to 1536. So before Anne became his queen and it was finished the year she was executed. So um, perhaps that's why we don't know for sure that it was built for her because Henry probably kind of hushed that up after her fall, if, if he had intended it as a very uh, extravagant present for his second wife, then uh, he's, he's not going to shout about that uh, once it's complete, because by then, Jane Seymour was his queen. And Heather McCollum on Facebook would like to know about the flooring in royal residences during the Tudor times. Uh, so she mentions Whitehall and Hampton Court. Uh, were they stone or polished wood, she says, or maybe marble? It depended on which um, level. Um, so if ground floor, um, often tiling and, and sort of heavier flooring was used. First floor, it tended to be um, oak floorboards, but they would plaster them over and then paint them. And this is what always surprises me about palaces, just how blingtastic, if I can use that word, they would have been. There was colour 
everywhere. So the floors would have been brightly painted, the woodwork, uh, there would have been bright tapestries and, and paintings and ceilings would have been painted. We're much more conservative now and we think we're being authentic when you walk into a space with, space with lots of stone and, and woodwork. The Tudors would have thought that was really boring. Um, so floors, yes, they would have been very, very brightly coloured, um, but mostly painted rather than actual marble. They were painted to look like marble. Um, and a great example of that is at Hampton Court in the council chamber, which we actually reconstructed back in 2009 for the anniversary of Henry's accession. And visitors walk in there and say, oh, well, that's not very authentic, is it? It's like, no, that's totally authentic. This is how the floor used to be. And it's, yeah, you need a pair of sunglasses uh, to cope with it. And they're not, but some of the rooms as well, like the richer rooms, so the king's private apartments, the queen's private apartments, would have had um, what are often described in the inventories as, as carpets, but they're more like you know, luxurious rugs, really, not not fitted carpets as we would have today. Um, often um, fr- Turkish rugs um, and, you know, the, the richer you were, the more likely you were to have those, those kind of floor fittings. Otherwise, rush matting was very, very popular. Um, and, and that features in quite a few of the paintings from the Tudor period. Um, yes, so bright. Um, they wouldn't have been uh, many. Uh, you, you tend to see in films, don't you, kind of rushes and, and the scattering of, of lavender and herbs over them. That actually didn't happen very much. It was unhygienic. Um, and the Tudors weren't as bad as we think they were in that respect. How fascinating. Uh, what's an example of what's probably the best example if people wanted to visit something that felt authentic, do you think? Well, I think I've already done a bit of a pitch for that council chamber at Hampton Court. That's probably one of them. Um, but I don't know. I mean, there are, there are so many to choose from. Um, I would say as well, and it's, it's a less expected one, I suppose, but um, at the Tower of London, we recreated um, Edward I's uh, palace, which is above traitor's gate. Um, And that has a real feel for me of kind of an authentic palace experience with the original kind of decor and furnishings and flooring. So it's it's not that well known. And visitors to the tower tend to make a beeline for the crown jewels and the execution site. But go into St. Thomas's Tower. It really is like stepping back uh, in time. How and I'm also curious as well. How um, how when you're thinking, oh, I want to create an authentic portrayal of what this room might have been like. Um, how do you put this information together? Because I'm assuming, you know, we might have um, paintings and things, but they won't be comprehensive. Yes, you're right. In fact, the paintings are invaluable. Um, those that do exist, but um, paintings tend to be portraits and kind of from from the waist up rather than showing the floors um and and those that do exist such as the family of henry the eighth that's a very very good painting that's a good source for us but actually what's more interesting and useful are the inventories now the tudors were amazing bureaucrats detail obsessed they wrote everything down uh down literally down to the last button um if if it was owned by the monarch it would get recorded and you know thankfully most of those inventories still exist certainly there's the inventory that was taken uh after henry viii's death in 1547 and it is an absolute treasure trove because it doesn't just list things it describes things and you get a real sense of the lavishness and the luxury with which Henry was surrounded. 
Laura Bellis on Facebook wants to know a bit about how we differentiate between different types of uh, royal residences. Um, so it might seem obvious, but um, how, how do you tell the difference between a palace, a castle, a great house? Um, what are some key things to, to yes. be looking for? It's, it's another of those that's kind of not quite as simple as, as you might think. Um, on the whole, a castle had a military function generally built for defence um, and a palace um, was more for comfort and luxury and uh, as a residence, as so it had a more domestic purpose. But over the years, those two functions tended to merge. So you get a lot of castles that in the medieval period had a very definite kind of military feel to them. As the monarchy evolved and during the Tudor period where there were more prolonged periods of peace, they were less needed for defence. So they kind of evolved into more luxurious residences. Um, and so you can't just say some were just palaces, others were just castles. Uh, they, they kind of merged. And as for country houses. Well, you could argue that um, Osborne House, for example, on the Isle of Wight, it's not called Osborne Palace, it's Osborne House. But it sort of was a palace because it was lived in by the royal family. And for me, that's how I always differentiated it. If, if, if it's a residence of the royals, then it's a palace, even if it looks like quite a modest house. Otherwise, it's just the house of a nobleman or someone who's lucky enough to afford something so big. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. The best find for me during my time at historic royal palaces has been the rediscovery, not the discovery, but the rediscovery of Henry VIII's private apartments. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Brendan Mitchell on Facebook wants to know, um, well, he says, Windsor and Balmoral are probably two of the most well-known residences today. Um, but what other residences were particularly favoured by other monarchs? I think we've mentioned Henry VIII's favourites. Um, but do we have other examples? Yes, we do. And I'm not going to go back to Henry VIII. Otherwise, this will just be about Tudor royal residences and I will get lots of complaints. Um, I would say as well, a couple of the... Um, the, the royal residences that were very much favoured by modern royals um, were Sandringham, which obviously is still in use. I mentioned it tends to be where the royal family spend Christmas. Also Clarence House, uh, which um, was a popular royal residence during the late Georgian period, and particularly, you know, the Prince Regent and uh, and George the so when he became George the Fourth onwards. Really, it became um, very very popular. Um, and I, I think probably a more unusual one um, would be Brighton Pavilion um, and and the 
the ostentation uh, that uh, it was. It was like a kind of wedding cake uh, of, a, of a residence. It was quite extraordinary. Um, and that was the brainchild of George IV as well. But going further back, um, Elton Palace, which still exists and, and is still largely intact, certainly the, the medieval Great Hall, uh, built by Edward IV, so the, the great Yorkist king, brother of uh, Richard III, uh, the, the Great Hall there very much has uh, his stamp, and that became really a, a nursery uh, during the Tudor period. Sorry, I've mentioned those Tudors uh, again. Um, but earlier than that, I would I would make a pitch for the Tower of London because that was a real favourite with many of the, the earlier monarchs in our history. So the, the likes I've mentioned, Edward I, but also Henry III, probably did more to shape the tower as we know it today than any other monarch. Um, and, it, and it really did become quite popular as a residence, not just as a place of defence. It's got this, that kind of sinister reputation now as that's where there are dungeons and executions. But actually, it was a pretty nice palace to live in as well. Sticking with Brendan Mitchell, um, he also wants to know about how the different dynasties made changes, which we have touched on. So did they did any monarchs do make changes deliberately to remove the influence of a previous monarch was that a thing that happened in royal residences you get that quite a lot because each new monarch of course wants to put their stamp on things and to change things to their taste. And I would say probably the best example is with the most famous palace, Buckingham Palace, um, which started out quite modest. As I mentioned, George III bought it as Buckingham House at the beginning of his reign, and it was very much a kind of private domestic space, really. And then his son, George IV, changed all of that and spent lavishly and made it this jaw-droppingly spectacular palace because he had hated everything that his father had stood for. He hated his um, sort of frugal nature. He saw him as, as kind of very stingy, very mean. Um, they didn't get on at all. So George IV was absolutely going to go to town uh, when he became king. Um, and I would just draw another comparison with, it's not so much a new monarch, uh, but a new wife. Uh, so I can't not mention Henry VIII in this context because each time he married, he kind of removed the traces of the former wife and uh, replaced them with the new wife, whether that's uh, initials, whether that is their um, heraldic beast or whatever it might be. He decorated each palace in honour of the current wife. And often, you know, those poor carpenters and the like at the palaces, they were still busy making the new decorations when they were told to take them down and replace them because there's a new wife in town. And I guess also there's just the simple factor of like changing fashions as well. They would change. I mean, we change our houses and living rooms today. I guess that would happen in the past. Too. It did happen. And uh, the thing that makes me want to weep on an almost daily basis when I'm at Hampton Court is that William and Mary, so in, in the uh, sort of late 1600s, when they came to the throne. They visited Hampton Court because William III was asthmatic. Um, they didn't like the unclean air of London. It aggravated his breathing. So they wanted a house in the country. 
Um, and they loved Hampton Court when they visited it, but it was entirely Tudor, so very old fashioned. And they thought, we're just going to pull this down and build uh, a new palace. Um, now, thank goodness they ran out of money halfway through. So we still have half of the original Tudor Palace, but we would have had the whole thing if they hadn't done that. Uh, we uh, arguably, you know, it depends on your taste. We now have a, a rather nice Baroque style palace as well. Um, you know, the magnificent architecture of the late 17th, early 18th century, the kind of modern extension, if you like, uh, to Henry's original palace. But yeah, as a Tudor historian, I can't condone that sort of behaviour. And Toby on Twitter wants to know, was there an administrative process for changing the ownership of residences from dynasty to dynasty or was it just automatic? It was pretty automatic, actually, with the main residences. Um, They were the property of the crown, not of the person wearing the crown. So when that person died, uh, they stayed with the crown. The next wearer of that crown would inherit everything. So palaces, jewels, lands, titles. It was a pretty automatic and for the most part, a pretty seamless process. Were there any big disputes about um, inheritance or someone coming out and saying, actually, I'm, you know, I'm not happy with this? Not so much on palaces, more on lands. There were some, you know, complicated conveyancing issues, I think. But I, I think there's a little bit of a case of people trying it on when there's a new monarch and, you know, just hoping that they won't realise that actually, yes, that particular bit of land is due to them and um, trying to keep it for themselves. But on the whole, it was a well-oiled machine. And this is what I was saying earlier about inventories and kind of obsession with detail, this is when it stood the crown in good stead. They knew exactly what they had. When a monarch died, a full inventory of their possessions was taken. So it wasn't just the, the bricks and mortar, but what was inside uh, that was detailed as well. Um, and so that made for a fairly seamless transition from, from monarch to monarch. Nicholas Serges wants to know about chapels. So were adjustments made to the the chapels within residences to reflect the faith of the current monarch? Yes, uh, to a certain extent. Um, but really, um, I, I mean, it did change quite rapidly in the, in the mid-Tudor period. But um, so as a general rule, until the Reformation, all monarchs were Roman Catholic. So their chapels um, reflected that. And, and the Roman Catholic chapels tended to be very highly decorated. Um, they had rude screens, they had wall paintings, they had you know, lots of candles and also relics, you know, saints, relics, all very much associated with the Roman Catholic religion. A lot of that was swept away with the Reformation and with the rise of the Protestant faith. Now, there was a brief reversal with, with Catholic Mary I, Bloody Mary, as she's better known, who tries to bring us back to Catholicism. But then really, from that time onwards, with a few notable exceptions, we are a Protestant country, with, or officially, with a Protestant monarchy. In fact, that was a condition of wearing the crown after uh, the, the glorious revolution of 1688. You had to be Protestant to be king or queen of Great Britain. It was enshrined in law. So from that time on, you know, the chapels were those sort of simpler versions that had started to come in after the Reformation. 
Um, and now on to my favourite question from Jessica Roberts on Facebook, who wants to know about secrets of palaces. Um, so what has, for you, is the best find in a royal residence? Where to begin? Uh, could it be Hitler's toilet in the Tower of London? Apparently a toilet was uh, kept uh, for Hitler. They expected to take him prisoner during World War II and they had his rooms prepared. Uh, of course, Rudolf Hess ended up a prisoner in the tower. Uh, so they'd even, uh, you know, installed a toilet uh, and it's still known today as Hitler's toilet. I like that one. I'm not going to choose that um, as my favourite. I would say, actually, the best find for me during my time at historic royal palaces has been the rediscovery, not the discovery, but the rediscovery of Henry VIII's private apartments. Now, you might say, how on earth did we not know that that's what they were. Well, over time, uh, the palace and the rooms within the palace um, have changed use. They have uh, been occupied not just by royals, but by courtiers. And this suite of rooms had been misidentified as just courtiers' lodgings. Um, and it was only thanks to further research in the building's accounts that we actually discovered they were the private apartments of King Henry VIII himself. So for years, we'd been telling visitors whose number one question is, where's Henry VIII's bedroom? We've been telling them it doesn't exist. And actually, now we've found it really does exist. Um, and I had one of the most memorable experiences of my time at historical palaces when I went to look around. Now, you have to use your imagination. Their offices now uh, they've been they've changed a bit over the years, but just standing in the space where so much history happened uh, was just incredible. And I hope one day we'll be able to open back up those private world, that private world rather of Henry VIII, because it really just is absolutely amazing. What a find! I didn't expect to find a whole suite of rooms. I thought it'd be like something behind a. Uh, you know, but behind some panelling or under a floorboard. But to actually discover a whole suite of rooms was quite special. It's a secret hiding in plain sight, really. Definitely. <laughs> um, and Jessica also asks um, could, if you could go back in time to visit one long lost palace, which one would you go to? Making no apologies for the fact that it's a Tudor choice. I would go for Richmond Palace. Um, it was... Another palace that was very, very emblematic of the Tudors, it was built by Henry VII, the first Tudor monarch. But the reason I love it so much is that my favourite monarch in history, Tudor or otherwise, is Elizabeth I. And uh, Richmond was her favourite palace. She called it her warm box because it had a quite sophisticated kind of central heating system for the time. Now, palaces would have been very, very cold as a general rule. I spend my life cold. I'm always cold, and particularly at Hampton Court, uh, where even in the middle of a heat wave, I'm sitting there with several layers on because it's so cold. Uh, Richmond, Richmond Palace apparently was beautifully warm. That's why Elizabeth I loved it. She chose to spend uh, her final days there. Um, and I just think I would love to have seen it. It was a beautiful, beautiful riverside palace. We still have a couple of paintings of it. And it's very reminiscent of Nonsuch with the, the kind of turrets, the fairy tale palace appearance. Uh, so I would I would have a little, you know, row down the Thames and alight at Richmond and, and spend a few weeks there, I think. 
do we have an understanding of what what made it uh, warmer than perhaps other palaces? You mentioned a sort of rudimentary central heating system. Yeah, I think it was that. I think um, it was it was well situated. A lot of the kind of principal rooms were south facing, so they got a lot of sunlight. It had even it had a, a flushing toilet there as well. So it it seems to have been kind of ahead of its time in terms of modern conveniences. Now, sadly, only today the gatehouse remains. Um, I've been there a few times and kind of tried to imagine the rest of it. Um, it's still, you know, beautiful. I'd recommend going if anybody's in that area of London because uh, it's a beautiful part of, of West London and, and it's right by Richmond Green uh, and you still get a sense of the history even though only a fragment of the original palace survives. A fun question now from Big Bad One on Twitter who wants to know about ghosts stories. So can you tell us some particularly spooky tales from British royal residences? I can. I'm going to tell my favourite story, uh, which is Hampton Court, of course. Uh, But it is about uh, the childhood nurse of um, Edward VI. So uh, she was Sybil Penn, and she was also an attendant of Elizabeth I. She kind of cared for all of Henry VIII's children at one time or another. Now, Sybil Penn was uh, intensely loyal. She was devoted to each of her young charges. And when she attended Elizabeth I, when she became queen, uh, an epidemic of of smallpox swept through the palace early in Elizabeth's reign. And Elizabeth herself fell ill with it. Everybody thought she was going to die. And Sybil, um, who by then was quite an old lady, she insisted on staying with the Queen, even though she was highly infectious and nursing her through it. Well, sadly, Sybil caught smallpox and she died a few days later. Well, she was buried at St Mary's Church in nearby Hampton, but her tomb was disturbed in the Victorian period during renovations to the church. And apparently, at the very moment that the tomb was disturbed, that's when strange noises and appearances started to be noted at Hampton Court by Grace and Favour residences, residents rather. And uh, further investigation work was carried out when most of these sightings had taken place. And it was found that actually they were in Sybil's old rooms. And they they thought that the sound was coming from behind a wall. So they took down part of the wall and found an old spinning wheel. Now, Sybil was known to have loved spinning and the spinning wheel was still there. And Sybil herself made an appearance at one of the windows while they were investigating. They saw a lady dressed in grey who bore a striking resemblance to Sybil Penn. And the grey lady is the most seen ghost at Hampton Court even to this day, except I've never seen her. But that's not to say uh, that she hasn't been seen by many others. So it's probably Sybil Penn is my favourite ghost story. I was going to ask if you'd seen her or had any <laughs> spooky encounters. It's like um, a historic fairy tale, a, a spinning wheel behind a... I know! I know, it's it's sleeping beauty all over again, isn't it? Absolutely. Um, So as we near the end of the podcast, um, I wanted to ask you about some of your books. So you researched a number of royal residences for your book, Crown and Scepter, which is a history of the British monarchy. Uh, So what fascinating stories did you unearth whilst you were writing this book? 
Oh, so many. I, I think there were some big surprises for me along the way um, in that monarchs that I expected to really be drawn to, I actually ended up really taking against. <laughs> I'll give you some examples. Well, the prime example being Edward VIII. So this great sort of romantic figure in history, he gave up his crown for love when he fell in love with Wallace Simpson, but she's a divorcee, so he can't marry her and stay king. And I just realised the more I researched Edward's story, what a lucky escape we had. He was quite a nasty piece of work. He was very, very vain. He had a cruel streak. And he made no secret of the fact that he found it intensely boring being king and he neglected his duties. So I think actually it kind of saved the monarchy that Edward gave up the crown uh, for love um, and uh, handed it to his uh, younger brother, uh, Bertie, who became George VI, who was much more dutiful. And of course, he, he passed that sense of duty on to his daughter and successor, our current queen, Elizabeth II. And also, I suppose, more of a discovery. When I was in the final stages of writing this, I had an email from one of my colleagues at Historical Palaces saying, I've been told about this carved falcon that apparently was Anne Boleyn's and it once decorated the Great Hall at Hampton Court. And I don't know if it's genuine or not. And I didn't take it too seriously because I am told about quite a few of these kind of artefacts and most of them turn out to be fake. But I contacted the owner, Paul Fitzsimmons, who's an expert in, in early uh, oak uh, antiques. And the more I heard about it, the more I thought, hang on a minute, this sounds like it could be the genuine article because the falcon was Anne Boleyn's most famous emblem. And that Great Hall used to be plastered with them. There are still a few in the Great Hall ceiling, but they've been painted black so that uh, nobody notices them. But this one had been restored to its former glory and it was it was silver and, and gold. Uh, it's, it's sitting on a bed of red and white Tudor roses. And when I got to see it in the flesh, it's a moment I will always, always remember. And I tell the story of that falcon in the book Crown and Sceptre. And I'm delighted to say that we now have it on loan at Hampton Court and on display in the Great Hall back where it belongs. Amazing. I know this is going to be a really complicated question because it's such a specialty. But when when you have an artefact like this um, and you're going through that process of discovering, is it a fake? Is it legitimate? Uh, what, what are some of the key, like identifying things that make you say, yes, actually, this, this probably was um, legit? Well, um, we do look into its provenance because usually with with any antique that, that we're told about, there is a sort of paper trail of where it came from and then where they got it from. But actually, it's modern science that helps us the most. So it's paint analysis, um, and that's really what helped us with the falcon. Paint can be dated very, very accurately. And of course, also dendrochronology is possible so that we can pinpoint not just the century or the decade, but kind of the year. And we know this, this falcon dated from 1532 or 1533, so just before 
and became queen. And what's remarkable about it is that it's it's crowned uh, already, even though she wasn't then, uh, but it's crowned with a, an imperial crown. And this is a time when Henry has put himself above the Pope. He's making himself like an emperor. And so Anne Boleyn is his empress and her falcon wears the imperial crown. So that was a real clue as well. But as I say, nine out of 10, 99 out of 100 even, of these discoveries that that we're told about turn out to be not what the owner hoped. But this was something very, very special indeed. And you kind of have to see it to believe it and to appreciate it. So hopefully people will be inspired to come and take a look or or I've written about it uh, on our website as well. It sounds amazing. Do you want to give a shout out to the website so people can go follow the link after listening to the podcast? Absolutely. So it's uh, hrp for historicroyalpalaces.org.uk. Fab. Um, And we're going to finish actually on a question about Anne Boleyn, (laughs) funnily enough. So you're looking at the residences of Anne Boleyn for your next book. Um, So what can the places Anne lived in add to our understanding of her? Oh, I think they can add so much. Um, Yeah, I'm writing a book about Anne and her daughter Elizabeth and how their relationship changed England, really, as well as uh, changed both of those extraordinary women. And so I've spent a lot of time, obviously, places connected with Anne, the Tower of London in particular, but also um, places where we know she left her mark. So her childhood home of Hever Castle in Kent, which is just the most exquisite um, kind of country house, if you like. You can really imagine uh, stepping back in time there. Um, and, and you know, we have Anne's uh, books of hours there. Um, Hever Castle still have those and on display, which she has kind of doodled in. She's she's left her mark in those books, little phrases, and, and uh, she's sketched her emblem in in others of her books as well. And I think it just really brings history to life when you're, even if the palace has changed or or the house has changed, I think standing in a space that you know somebody you're writing in used to live in, it's like nothing else. You get a real sense of of kind of going back in time. Um, And that's what happened for me at Hever Castle in particular, as well as both the glory and then the downfall of Anne at the Tower of London. Now, sadly, Anne's apartments uh, in the old Tudor Royal Palace at the Tower have since been destroyed. They were taken down uh, during the the seventeenth uh, century, um, but yeah, we we have enough descriptions of what they look like to to really kind of imagine. And what I particularly loved a bit of trivia: clearly, Anne Boleyn's favourite colour was yellow. Yellow was everywhere. She had walls painted yellow. She wore yellow a lot. I think it was kind of just her colour. Amazing. I might rethink painting my kitchen because I moved in last year and it is in fact yellow. (laughs) And Villain's favourite colour. Fantastic. (laughs) Um, That's great, Tracy. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. That was all absolutely fascinating. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. You were just listening to the historian Tracy Borman. Tracy's latest book is Crown and Scepter, a new history of the British monarchy from William the Conqueror to Elizabeth II. It was published in November 2021 by Hachette. 
For more by Tracy, including a quiz on the history of the British monarchy, visit historyextra.com forward slash Tracy hyphen Borman. If you'd like to submit a question for a future Everything You Wanted to Know episode, then make sure you're following us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at History Extra, where we'll be doing the shout outs for future episodes. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley.